Welcome to The Launch, the podcast sponsored by Tandem Launch, where we talk about tech, startups, entrepreneurship, and everything in between. We give you the inside scoop on building a startup, capital fundraising, the entrepreneurial journey, with both funny and impactful stories. This podcast is for budding entrepreneurs, ecosystem players, industry folks, venture capitalists looking for deals, students considering a career in the startup world, or anyone with a curiosity in Deepak. If you have a research background in tech and always wanted to build your own startup, then check out our website, www.tenemlaunch.com, or hit us up on LinkedIn. Let's build the future together. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Launch Podcast, sponsored by Tandem Launch. I'm your host, Bobby Vidochka, and today, joining me as co-host once again, the Director of Content from Startup Fest, the beloved Rebecca Kroll. Thank you, Bobby. I am very happy to be back with you again, and also extremely happy that we have a fantastic guest on today's show, someone we're pretty sure has superpowers, and uh, in a little while, <laughs> we're pretty sure you're going to agree, human resource aficionado and CEO of Candor, Nia Dragova, who will also be joining us as a speaker at Scale Up Fest, April 12th to 14th. More on that at the end of the episode, but Nia, welcome. We would love to learn a bit about you, so if you can tell us a bit about yourself and how you ended up co-founding Candor. Thank you both so much for having me, and I'm uh, incredibly excited to be chatting with you today. A little bit about me. I'm a first-generation U.S. immigrant from a very tiny country called Bulgaria, and my background is in finance and HR. Uh, for a while, I worked for the largest private bank in the U.S., and uh, they serve uh, high net worth individuals and complex businesses like hedge funds and venture funds. So I've always been kind of in the venture universe, but a bit adjacent. And uh, it was a 10,000-person organization where uh, in HR, I headed all of the things like compensation, performance reviews, executive executive training, compliance. And while I was there, I taught myself how to code and moved over to our chief investment officer's office when she came uh, from Goldman Sachs. And eventually she became president uh, and I sort of headed her SWAT team kind of as a fixer of sorts. I built our competitive intelligence and sales quant teams from the ground up. Uh, and my role was to support our largest bankers. So these are folks who had books of business of uh, over a billion dollars each. And uh, my role was accelerating their business or optimizing their operations their sales workflow. It was extremely fun. Um, and I got to meet like the titans of industry of pretty much every field, but something was always missing for me. And uh, every single waking moment outside work and every lunch break and every break, uh, I spent most of my time uh, advocating for women and minorities, either in the company or in my personal life uh, with David, who's a really, really close friend, um, especially in things like salary negotiation. Uh, him and I, like literally nights and weekends would set up shop and people would either call us or come over to our living room and we would have these workshops on how do you negotiate for yourself and what your situation is and how do you get promoted and it was the thing that I was really passionate about my job was really exciting but this was what I was really really craving and we decided it was just getting too much so we decided to write an article on how to negotiate your salary extremely long comprehensive like 10,000 word essay on everything you could think of really to have people leave us alone a little bit um, because it was just getting insane and 
it would be an understatement to say it backfired because it just went viral, uh, which I'd never experienced at the time. And we both ended up deciding to leave our jobs and uh, start Candor with our first kind of big mission around the company being fixing pay equity in tech. And uh, over time, we've uh, negotiated thousands of people's salaries and we work with a ton of companies to help them understand their compensation models. Uh, and, you know, what started as like my living room, I'm now kind of the top salary negotiator in tech. Uh, and I negotiate salaries in the tens of millions for uh, folks from, you know, executives to uh, even people who are new grads and just starting out. So it's become a real passion. Amazing. Okay. As we were prepping for this, we're going to dive right into it. As we were prepping <laughs> for this discussion, you mentioned that you had just called out a massive tech company for their hiring process. So can you tell us a bit about that and how companies can be candidate friendly as they are hiring new hires? Yeah, definitely. So I have a really unique view on the marketplace uh, because I see every kind of talent movement from company to company from the candidate perspective. And I see in such large numbers that I could sort of tell which companies have good hiring practices, which companies uh, have flaws or which companies are downright abusive. And uh, one of the things that we've decided to do this year is start a newsletter sort of exposing all of that information. Because as a candidate, sometimes it could feel so isolating to have an experience that you feel is just happening to you because you're the only one in your own interview process. And it might feel like, oh, I don't know how to get out of it. Or maybe this is normal because I'm not going to ask anybody else. And so we found a situation where I won't name the company because they're very, very big, uh, but they were habitually truly um, basically uh, breaking the law and uh, in, in compensation side uh, and putting uh, especially people who are Chinese American immigrants in situations where they were, um, you know, really intimidated to disclose details they don't have to legally disclose and uh, not given information that they're legally due. And so we wrote about it in the newsletter, uh, which has a massive following, like over 50,000 people read it weekly. And uh, it kind of went, uh, went viral as well. The company when you reached out, they were very upset that we had done that. Uh, but realistically, my, my job is to protect candidates, not companies. Uh, and I told them as much. I, uh, we offered to come in and, and give them a list of everything that they can improve. Uh, I don't think they're interested. So I might write them uh, another newsletter, love letter in a couple of weeks if they don't fix their practices. Uh, but transparency really lacks in the industry. And um, this is one of the reasons why I'm so, so passionate about doing projects like this. It gives people a, an idea of what can you do better for candidates and how can you make the experience better, not just for your company. So you can get top talent, but for individuals who really are interacting with your company maybe for the first time and will form their entire idea of your brand from how you treat them in the hiring process. Um, so there's really three kind of hard and fast rules. If you're a founder or if you're a hiring manager, these are really the three things you need to do uh, when it comes to your hiring process. The first one is be incredibly transparent. What does this mean? This means um, telling your candidates how levels and salary bands work at your company upfront. And if you're very small, like us at Candor, you don't have uh, levels maybe yet, maybe you don't even have salary bands. It's okay to say that you don't have those. Be honest about what's the range you've budgeted for the role and how you make a compensation decision. Um, this could be as simple as saying, we're planning on 100 to 130,000 for this role. And to be at the higher end of the band, we expect someone to do insanely well in interviews. And that's our main decision factor. If you're this transparent, people really know what to expect. And they also know how to ask for more if they feel like maybe they did really well 
and you can have a transparent, honest conversation about that. The second big thing is being empathetic. And this gets lost in the hiring process because sometimes you're not incentive aligned with candidates. Your job is to get a butt in the seat sometimes, but candidates have a completely different incentive. They have to provide for their family. They have to develop their career. And often in the hiring process, these interests diverge. Interviewing is incredibly stressful. And some of the best candidates, they honestly don't perform well in interviews at all. Design your interview process in a way that gives someone an extremely realistic idea of what the job is going to actually be like and try to eliminate stress as much as possible. Um, what helps a lot is if you have a blend of assignments uh, in your interview that cater to folks that might be more introverted or even folks that might be neurodiverse. So we like to have a blend, for instance, of something like pair programming, but also have something like a take-home assignment. Um, and the last big thing is be accessible. Uh, there's so, so many things that candidates are often afraid to ask. Um, for example, what is work-life balance like? Uh, do you offer accommodations for folks with disabilities? Uh, what does the diversity actually look like on your team? Because imagine how incredibly intimidating uh, it is for you to have to ask, am I the first person of color you're hiring? Don't put people in a position where they have to ask that question. It's your job to preemptively answer and proactively really think about those things. And for smaller companies, offer reference checks. Your early employees are really investors in your company, only they're not investing their time, uh, their money, they're investing their time. So give them the same level of respect and transparency. Um, it's honestly this simple. And uh, if you don't do these things or you don't even do one of these things, you will find yourself in a position where you're passing on extraordinary talent and you're not discovering people who could be incredibly special and impactful for the journey of your company. Uh, or, you know, alternatively, if, if you don't do these things, you could also end up in my newsletter. So if the first part doesn't motivate you, <laughs> maybe the second one does. <laughs> Amazing. All right, let's talk. So that's about how to make sure that you're actually being candidate friendly. Mm -hmm. What is the difference between recruiting and hiring? What can we share with entrepreneurs about that distinction and why it's important as an organization grows beyond that, that founding team? Oh, that's an incredibly good question. And it's something I actually learned the hard way. So I'm um, very happy to be able to share it. Hopefully it's valuable to other folks. Um, recruiting and hiring are, are definitely not the same thing. Um, often as founders, we really don't think about bringing in another person until we have a burning need. Something's on fire, something needs to be built. All right, let's go hire now. This is a huge mistake. Um, there's two reasons for that. First, it's very difficult to find good talent. Um, and it's also very challenging to convince extraordinary people to join if they don't know you. These two things are really, really important to understand because that puts you in a situation where you're at risk of busting your budget uh, to hire someone that you desperately need because the only way you can convince them is through money, not for your product. You just don't have the time for them to get to know the team and understand the impact of what you're building. So the only thing you could do is pay them more to join. This is very bad because it creates incentive misalignment both for you and for the other person. Recruiting is a very long process. I have people in the pipeline that I'm not planning on hiring for probably at least over a year, sometimes even longer. Wow. And I bring in those people as advisors or even just as thought partners. They're people that I might call a few times a month to 
kind of think through problems together, get their advice, ask for their perspective, and just get to know them and give them a chance to get to know the team for a longer period of time. And it helps both of us because it really de-risks expectations and it helps us see if there's like truly mutual fit over time. Uh, recruiting is essentially about building that relationship and nurturing it. And the worst thing that could happen is, you know, you find out it's not a fit, but now you have a super advocate for your product and for your company and for your team because they know you and you've built trust over time. And hiring is just about pulling the trigger. So there are two completely uh, different activities. And the last thing I'll say on that is generally as a founder, I hire uh, people contract to full time as often as I can do that because it also gives us time to assess fit uh, and no one's feelings get hurt. So if you don't have the benefit of doing this, you know, six month or one year dance, then hiring people contract to full time is really a kind of very smart thing to do. You have to really get used to the fact that not everyone will work out at your company and you need to be able to fire people extremely fast. Time is your most valuable asset. There's absolutely no time for performance reviews or performance improvement plans. If it's not working as a startup, it's costing you money. And and as a founder, even if you have the best intentions, you realistically just don't have time to mentor people when you're building a business. And it's just not fair both to you and to the other person. So if you can't recruit them over a six month period, then at least hire them as a contractor and build that realistic expectation. Wow, that is a bucket load of truth right there. <laughs> so do, do they actually know the people that you're um, engaged with for a year? Do they know that you're each other? Are you checking each other out or no? Do they um, I mean, I'm a little sneaky, so it depends. If, if uh, I feel like uh, it's someone who I can be transparent with uh, and not intimidate them in that way, absolutely, I would do that. I think oftentimes as a founder, there's a really interesting thing that happens uh, that I was not ready for. And that's people start following you and really thinking of you as, uh, you know, kind of a, a larger than life figure or as someone who a little bit walks on water. And sometimes if you tell a person you're looking to hire them, it actually might intimidate them, even if you don't mean to. And you really want to put people in the best position to shine and to really truly give them a chance to evaluate you as a person and get to know you on a just a normal level. Because I don't think of myself that way, but you have to take off your kind of personal uh, perception of yourself and, and realize that when you look at the perspective of someone else, uh, you need to have enormous empathy for what they might feel and how you can make it as comfortable as possible for them. So if I feel like someone already kind of gets that I'm a super goofy, silly person and nothing is a bad idea and actually love bad ideas, uh, like ideas that don't work out because it helps me fail faster and learn faster, and I know they'll be comfortable failing around me, I'll absolutely tell them. If I feel like they're still in the phase where they want to impress me, then no, because I need to break down that barrier and uh, get to a point where they really are comfortable uh, voicing everything in their head. And that's really when we build friendship and kinship and, you know, really see if it's lovely. What a very human. This is approach. so much just good, good advice. Yeah. <laughs> good advice so good. being like a nice human so being. So good. Yeah, exactly. So um, let's talk about compensation. So everybody wants some. Um, what is the reality, like the, the dream version of, oh, my dream salary versus like, here's the reality? Um, compensation is such an interesting subject. I can speak about compensation probably from now until I get like run out of oxygen, pass out, wake up and start again for an infinity amount of time. So the way that I view compensation and just career growth generally is 
people have incredibly different career goals that we inadvertently tie subconsciously to compensation. So before I talk to anyone about money, I really want to understand where they where they actually want to go. And sometimes they might not know that about themselves. And it helps to have that exploratory conversation. Some people are very driven by learning new skills, and they really want to be able to build something with those skills and everything they do is in pursuit of that. Other people are very title driven or accreditation driven. Other people are truly compensation driven, but for most people, compensation is a means to an end. And so understanding how important and why it's important for you will then help you pick the right company. And as a founder, uh, understanding what types of people you want to attract and how their values will align with yours will help you figure out a compensation strategy. On the candidate side, you absolutely need to spend some time researching how companies pay before you start applying. Many times people will apply and then get incredibly disappointed after spending a month in an interview process that a company can't match another company because they never did the upfront research of seeing, well, what are the salary bands there? Will it fit in my budget? Can I live on this? Does it align with these kind of goals and aspirations that I have? So the very first question you should have as a candidate is how does this pay? Can you walk me through what your pay bands are, what your compensation strategy is? And as a founder, before you start paying anybody anything, you should really think about will these salaries be sustainable in five years? Will these salaries be, salaries be sustainable in 10 years? And by sustainable, I mean every single person you hire needs to have a growth trajectory. And many founders forget that just because you're paying someone X, that doesn't mean they're going to be okay with being paid that next year or six months from now or two years from now, because as their contribution in the company grows, they'll expect more value and profit share from you. And so the best thing to do as a founder is very early on in your company is to think about an incentive compensation structure. So do not hire a single person at your company until you know how much their raise is going to look like. What can you afford to give in raises a year? Will you be doing equity refreshers? What is the potentially next level up for this person? How will you develop them? How will they develop themselves? Do you have projects that will be in sufficient increasing complexity to align with this person's actual goals, which you should absolutely be discussing outside of the expectations for the role. So these are kind of my thoughts on both sides, very high level. Wow, incredible. So you see to really have your ear to the ground and your finger on the pulse. Um, are there any emerging trends that you'd like to share? Sure. So we do an incredibly high number of negotiations. And so we see a lot of the market movement from you know, our very unique vantage point. And we have a lot of conversations at scale that I think normally people are not exposed to. And that's what are people really thinking when they move from one company to another company, not just are they moving to Facebook because it's, you know, Facebook, what are they actually, what's underneath that? And there's two kind of interesting trends happening right now. One is a little bit bad for founders. One is very, very good for founders. The bad one is we're in a very, very unique uh, hiring market right now. Most junior candidates are skewing towards companies like Facebook and Google in very large numbers. It is extremely rare to talk to someone who is uh, in college right now or graduating soon who is not trying to apply for one of these companies. And so there really is a war on junior talent. And that's only intensifying because even bigger companies like Netflix, who traditionally mainly hire senior people, have started to see the value in bringing people in early and they've opened an internship program for the first time ever. And hiring in this sector has accelerated so fast that this year, 
Facebook's hiring for uh, junior product managers opened and closed so fast, literally in under, under a month, that there were dozens uh, of people who had passed the entire interview process, which is very long and very grueling, and they had nowhere to be placed. And usually there's the opposite pro- problem. Usually there's way too many openings and not too many qualified candidates. Uh, so for junior talent, there is a massive, massive amount of competition. The opposite is actually <laughs> inversely true. Senior talent is leaving these big, big companies in droves. So directors, like VP level folks at companies like Facebook, uh, Amazon, Google, all of them are very heavily considering smaller companies right now. We're seeing that in really in record numbers. And so if you are a founder who needs to recruit for a C-level role at your company and you want to bring in a, a fairly experienced leader, you're really in luck because there's an extremely high volume uh, of folks who are looking to make an impact. So those are the two biggest trends uh, that I'm seeing and I'm closely monitoring to see how they develop, uh, especially for junior folks which I think traditionally have been a feeder for uh, talent for smaller companies. And, and now we're really seeing that shift in a very big way. So when we were talking earlier, you mentioned specialized hiring. Can you give the listeners some insight into what that is and when it should be done and when it should absolutely not be done? Yeah, definitely. So one of the when you when you first start a company, you are doing absolutely everything. You are the product manager, designer, sometimes you're the data scientist. 99% of the time you are the engineer. And it's very exciting at first. And when things start picking up, it becomes extremely tiring very fast. So often there's a temptation the very first time that you raise any capital and you have money in the bank to immediately start hiring people to try to to put people on tasks that you just want to divest yourself of. And it's very, very tempting. And I absolutely understand it because I I feel the same way very often as a founder, but this is extremely dangerous. You know, I see companies graduate from Y Combinator and they are already like a 15 person team. And it gives me a heart attack to see that because many of those don't have product market fit. This is an extremely expensive way to run a company. It burns an incredible amount of capital. And, you know, I see companies that are burning more than, you know, 100,000 in runway monthly, but they've built nothing and they, you know, have like no customers, no PMF. This will absolutely kill your business. And if it's not just, even if you raise a larger amount of capital and and you're not, you know, constrained in terms of money and you can afford to do this, it's still very dangerous because it will really slow down the decision-making in your company. Having too many cooks in the kitchen can be critical, especially at times when you have to make very fast and very hard choices. So staying as small as possible for as long as possible is very important. Now, it doesn't mean you need to do absolutely everything. It does mean, though, that you have to prioritize which are the things that absolutely can be delegated out uh, and which are the things that, you know, you will have to continue doing for a little bit longer or uh, maybe hire people that could do a few functions versus a dedicated PM or a dedicated designer. And in the beginning as the founder, you also need to have extremely strong conviction on things like, for instance, growth and don't hire for things like growth uh, until you are absolutely sure what your strategy there is going to be. And until you have fully, fully reached product market fit for growth. Growth especially, I feel incredibly strongly, and I very often advise companies on how to make their first growth higher. And I never intended to do this. Uh, obviously, my, my full-time job is to run a company. And the way that I started advising people is because I made that mistake myself, and people started asking me what happened. We hired literally the very best growth person on the market. And he's someone who is very prominent in the growth community. 
he was the CEO and founder of one of the most successful growth marketing companies in the world. And he literally left his company and role as a CEO to come join my company. And everyone was like, oh, wow, Kander's doing this. This is insane. How did you get this guy? Because he's like a force of nature. He's like a household name. The guy has like a LinkedIn course uh, he teaches. Like he's absolutely crazy established. And two months in, it just was not working. Like in not, not, not working at all. And it wasn't for lack of trying or for lack of talent or for lack of desire. In fact, like this guy literally became uh, one of our like closest friends in the process of, you know, hiring him and, and working with him. He is an absolute treasure. But it really was because as a founder, I actually wasn't ready to really think about growth uh, at the like strategic level that he needed input from in order to be successful. So it was my mistake. It wasn't his mistake. It was absolutely my mistake as a founder. He was literally absolutely perfect. And to this day, he's one of our most valuable advisors. He's a really, really great friend. But this mistake was very hard for me because it affected someone else's life. It didn't just affect my company. It didn't just affect what we were doing. It was not a good fit, but it meant that, you know, it, it caused someone else to be in a suboptimal position. And so I started advising any other company that needed help on growth because of it. And so if you're a consumer company, or even if you're a B2B company, as a founder, if you do not understand growth, and you have not spent the time to really understand growth, my categorical position is that you have absolutely no business running a business. So stop everything you're doing and do that. Because once you bring a person in for that function, they become an extension of you. And you need to be perfectly aligned that any growth efforts going in the company, which will be probably your biggest spend in the company right after hiring, need to be allocated the right way. Wow, that's uh, that's really interesting because I find that most people who do the specialized hires, they do it because they think, well, I don't know growth, so I should hire. I'm going to hire the person who the knows person about it. The yeah, person yeah. who knows about it, so they do the growth. I mean, there's um, there's a very big difference between understanding the function at a level that makes you effective and understanding your business at a level where you can direct this function. So I didn't know growth sufficiently well, and I thought I could hire out my problem by finding the best person on growth. And I spent, you know, three months flying this person out from the UK and talking to him like every day to convince him to come work here because I was like, this is, this is what's going to solve this for me. And he came and, you know, he's like, absolutely the smartest person to ever exist in this area. And, and if anyone wants his information, please email me. I will absolutely pass it on. But the problem wasn't him. The problem was me. It's not understanding growth is just not acceptable if you need to build a company because he doesn't understand the product as well as I do. He doesn't understand the vision for the company as well as I do. And if I don't understand his function as well as he does, and these two are never going con to connect unless we both take a shit ton of steps in each other's direction and uh, kind of overlap. And in, in this case, I wasn't where I needed to be as a founder to direct him effectively. And that was 100% my shortcoming. And in the last kind of year, so I've not just understood growth. I'm probably like one of the preeminent experts on growth and consumer. Uh, we've grown candor to like just this insane traffic machine that pretty much everyone comes to ask, how the hell did you do it? And anybody that comes and asks, I, I teach them how to learn it versus who to hire because it gives you such a 
fast track to also getting to a product market fit to understand where growth is going to come from and who's actually going to want your product and why they're going to want it and how you're going to build, build it better for them. Uh, it's not just spending a ton of money on attracting people come. It's just really deeply understanding the psychology behind why they're there and how you can build things for them before they even know they need them. And you can't hire someone to do that. Like this is your vision. This is your baby. This is your company. You absolutely have to do that yourself. So I, I have one more question for you, but I want to ask a follow-up question onto that. How many, listening to you speak, you are such a self-aware founder. How many of the people that you work with are able to say, this is my problem, that was my fault, and actually take ownership of their decisions in hiring when they find that they're not going well? First of all, thank you so much for the compliment. I, uh, I was going to say the same thing. Like, wow, your <laughs> self-awareness is like un, un. Yeah, off, off, the off the charts. And also it's not easy for people to say, I did that wrong. Like yeah. that was my fault and take yeah. ownership of that. Yeah. That's not an easy thing for a lot of people to say. And it's, sure. it's something that I think a lot of founders would benefit from learning how to do and sort of mm. understand themselves and their accountability and, and where their, uh, their problems are. We were having a conversation with a couple of other speakers, um, Jonathan and Leslie from Enjoy the Work, who are also going to be speaking at Scale Up Fest. And they were telling a story about a founder that came in and was talking about how their the team's productivity just wasn't there. And then ultimately, it turned out that they acknowledged it was their fault, but they had to go through a whole process to, to have that learning. And uh, how, how often do you find that, you know, founders are actually aware of themselves and their mistakes? This is a very interesting question, because it, it really goes into the psychology of, of what, what mental and emotional transformation people go through when they become a founder. And these are, this is actually a very difficult journey, even for people who are extremely entrepreneurial. I was very successful at my old job. Like I was literally, my team was generating billions of dollars in deposits. And so I felt like that success would carry over into every new environment that I entered almost automatically. And it didn't. And the difference between being a good founder and being a bad founder is how fast you can identify your own mistake. And every single good founder is aware of what's going on. Uh, awareness and acknowledgement are two different mechanisms because there are a lot of external stakeholders you're responsible for as a founder. You're responsible for your team, uh, not just on a performance basis, but you know people work a job to feed a family. And so uh, many times psychologically admitting that something is not working is letting people down and also might cause doubt in people about, is this the right company for me? Did I make a mistake joining? And a really big role you have as a founder is to be the motivating force and the inspiring force. So many times while people understand what's going on, it's incredibly difficult to articulate it and people maybe struggle finding the words on how to articulate it to the team in a way that still keeps the team whole. You also have a lot of pressure from the market and a lot of pressure from uh, potential investors who also externally want to see companies that are doing well and founders that are powerhouses and founders that never have an issue. And the reality is we're all human and there's no founder without an issue and there's no company without a problem. But the narrative in the public space doesn't really talk to that. And unfortunately, because of that, every single founder I speak to knows there's a problem. Many times I'm the first person they verbally say it to. And many times it's very emotional and you know people just kind of let their emotions out because it is so isolating and lonely to be a founder. You can have a team of 55 people working for you or like, I don't know, 5,000 people working for you. And your role is to keep it all together. And so sometimes you have no one to say this to, even your spouse, because you have now taken a gamble with, you know, your 
uh, ability to provide for even your own family by staking yourself in this company. So many times people are even afraid to tell a spouse because it feels like, well, they might feel I'm not successful. So why did I leave my job to go pursue this thing? I'm also letting them down. And it's very important for founders to talk to other founders as much as possible, because this is one of the very few places that is emotionally and psychologically safe to express those feelings. So I would kind of argue to say, it's not that people are not self-aware, it's probably that they haven't built enough trust or they don't feel like incentives are sufficiently aligned to share with whoever is in front of them. And when I see a founder who's trying to oversell and try to be overly positive, many times I, for me, I see a person who is, you know, kind of hurting right now and they, they're not in their safe space and I have not provided that for them. And that means that I have not reached them in a way where I can be effective and valuable to them yet. And this is a, a very difficult perspective because in the beginning, when I started, I felt like, why am not, why am I not feeling okay? Why is this why why is this not as smooth as my previous professional experience? Why do I feel like I have to constantly be positive or it's not working? Why do people expect me to constantly be positive or it's not working? Um, I remember the first time I shared with one of our advisors that uh, I was just emotionally struggling. They're like, are you okay? What's happening? Oh my God. Because it was just this kind of like big crisis event. Uh, and I'm a very open and transparent person. So I'm really, uh, I, I talk about my feelings very freely. And then I realized like people just, I guess, don't do that. So again, my advice is, is find other founders as fast as possible. Uh, you need to have at least three to five other founders you talk to very regularly and find a way to articulate things in a way that are genuine to you. Don't worry about whether you sound constantly successful. It's more valuable for people to understand you're rapidly learning than for people to feel like you're, you've succeeded because they'll know whether you're successful or not by how your company's doing. You can't hide that, uh, but they don't know whether you're learning or not. And so that's what value can provide uh, in just kind of being transparent, but it takes time. It, it's very hard to have these conversations. Does that, does that make sense? Absolutely. No, I, I mean, thank you. That was a fantastic answer for my, my little add-on question. Okay. Last question. Cause I know we're running out of time though. I feel like we could talk to you for much, much longer if we were able to um, a question, I think that'll be really valuable to a lot of the people listening. How much should people be paying for early hires? You're, you're a fairly small company. What should you be paying? Like what is the ballpark? And it does that change depending on where you are? I mean, you're in the Valley. So obviously that's gotta be one amount. We're based in Montreal. That's going to be another, you know? So, so what should people be paying for early hires? That's an excellent question. And I get this question incredibly often because we have so much salary data candor people reach out uh, to say, oh, you have all these data points. Can you sit down with me and tell me how much I should pay people? So the way that compensation works right now, maybe stepping back, is what founders typically do is if you're a fairly small founder, you will usually ask your peers or your investors and read things online. If you're a little bit bigger, so if you're maybe like a 20 to 50 person company, you'll use something called option impact survey, which is something investors and companies participate in and share data in for exchange. And if you're a very big company, then uh, you're going to use something like Radford. So Facebook, Google, that size company, they all share data with each other uh, at Radford. And so people use these pool databases to do salary benchmarking. And that's just a fancy way of saying what's the least I can pay people and still stay competitive. And so because compensation by default has a quantitative component to it, especially as technical founders, uh, we tend to often overthink that component and get to a point where we are mentally over optimizing percentages and dollars when it comes to compensation. And so most of the tech 
time the conversation is around what percentage equity am I giving engineer number one? Should I do a hundred thousand or 150,000 or even very specifically, how much does this company pay? I want to pay exactly the same. That's not how compensation actually works. And if you anchor yourself to uh, calculators and spreadsheets, then you won't actually be able to have the human conversation about compensation and what your candidate, which is the whole point of having a compensation plan. My best advice around this is figure out what is a figure you can start out with that you feel very comfortable uh, losing if this hire does not work out. So this is the very first thing you need to say. Like, well, if I pay someone 200,000 a year and they don't work out, am I okay with that? The second thing you need to think about is what is this person's growth trajectory going to look like? So a lot of times I see founders say this hire deserves 3% off the bat, or this hire deserves, you know, 2%. That's a flawed way of thinking. Think about it as what is something that uh, I can give them right now to show them that I really value what they can bring to the company. But what is something that I can give them as incentive to continuously reward them for good performance? So maybe you do budget, uh, you know, two or 3% for your founding engineer, you don't have to give that to them at once, you could start by giving them one and a quarter, and then giving them a performance incentive of a quarter um, every year as a new refresher. It has the added benefit of every time you issue a refresher, it has its own vesting schedule. So it also keeps people around for longer. And it honestly lets people know that they're doing a good job. Many times you simply can't afford to give out additional bonuses and additional equity. And it is a very crappy experience for the candidate to know that every one of their friends is working at a company that uh, continuously appreciates them, has better benefits than you, has yearly bonuses, but you sort of give them nothing. And so all of a sudden, even the person who is extremely loyal to you is going to feel fairly unappreciated on the compensation side. And so have a compensation strategy that involves growth and not just let me give you everything I can right now in the beginning and pile it on. And then the third kind of advice is don't fall for uh, any blog posts or articles or, you know, guys or whatever that say this is the exact percentage amount uh, engineer number five should make because this is so contextual to your company. How much equity are the founders sharing between each other? How much dilution do you expect to experience based on uh, what you think your funding trajectory is going to look like? Are you going to do solely venture or are you maybe going to transition into debt and do a little bit of lending? And so all of these things should factor into how you think about how valuable your equity is, not just now, but over time. And for instance, if you're in a situation where you experience a lot of dilution, you might find yourself that it's just more candidate friendly to give them a little bit more. If you're in a situation where you'll mainly be doing debt, well, that is a completely, completely different uh, situation altogether. So those are the kind of three pieces of advice I often give founders. And then we sort of sit down and think through the answers of these. And based on the answers, you could come up with a really solid strategy that you can also explain to candidates uh, because the early people you hire deserve to know all these answers as well. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. So Nia, until you break me, I do think that you walk on water. (laughs) I told you, superpowers. She has superpowers. So um, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the launch. And um, where can people find Candor and get in touch with you? Uh, Candor.co is our site. 
and uh, my email is nia at candor.co. You're welcome to email me. Just don't expect a very fast response. I am a self-admitted procrastinator. I will get back to you eventually. If you want to reach me really fast, LinkedIn is the best way because my inbox is a bit of a mess. Very nice to spend some time with uh, both of you. And thank you so, so much for having me. Very excited for Scale Up Fest. And hopefully I'll meet some of the folks who are listening in the conference. Absolutely. Maybe I can chime in now about Scale Up Fest. April 12th to 14th, go to startupfest.com for further information. And uh, you'll be able to learn from Nia about how to compete with the Facebooks and the Amazons and the Netflix and the Google about how to compete for top talent. And uh, she's going to be joining us there. So we're very excited about that. Again, startupfest.com for information. Excellent. And thank you again so much to my incredible co-host, Rebecca Kroll. It is my absolute pleasure to have an excuse to spend an hour with you, Bobby. And a huge thank you to our listeners. We hope that you find loads of value from our podcast. And if you do, Please subscribe and share with your networks. Come follow us on social media. We're on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Ciao for now. Thank you for listening. We hope you had fun and gained valuable insights. Why don't you subscribe to the Launch Podcast today? You can share the podcast, tell a friend, and follow us on social media. If you have a research background in tech and always wanted to build your own startup, then check out our website, www.tandemlaunch.com and get in touch today.